The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Celebrating 10 years. Created by Carl The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning, everyone, and uh, a very warm welcome also from me to Trinity College, to the Trinity Long Room Hub, to the Neil Theatre, and to this anniversary symposium. I have to say, you are very brave to face the crisis of democracy so shortly after breakfast. <laughs> but after what we've just heard from Angela and Elspeth, we are all wide awake, inspired, and optimistic. It is a great honor and great joy for me, personally, to be part of this celebratory event that showcases and tests the vital contribution the arts and humanities make to addressing the burning questions of our time. During my years as director of the Trinity Longroom Hub and also now as a vice provost, I have been a passionate believer in public humanities. The responsibility and ability of the arts and humanities to be visibly and decisively involved in public debate and contribute to analysis and to answers and solutions. The formidable challenges facing us today, some of the most pressing of which feature in today's program, do not respect disciplinary boundaries of academia. And if we want to tackle them, we have to bring together the inside experience and expertise from across all fields of knowledge and from all sectors of society. Addressing these challenges and working for positive change is fundamentally about attitudes, behaviors, cultural habits, mentalities molded by historical experience and values. And it is the arts and humanities that offer rich and essential insights into what has shaped these and how they can be influenced. We are very proud to have the Trinity Long Room Hub as a national and international beacon of what the arts and humanities contribute to public discourse, to policy development and to societal progress, shining and getting stronger and stronger all the time over the last 10 years. I remember when we sat down with Terry Neal, a tireless, generous and superbly engaged advocate and supporter of the arts and humanities since the hub was established with Katrina Curtis, its executive director, Jennifer Edmund, the previous executive director and some others, and conceptualized what public humanities could mean for the Trinity Long Room Hub and for college and for society and how we could make it come to life. The Behind the Headlines format, which we tested and which Jane, Katrina and their team have taken from strength to strength ever since, has also shaped the format of this anniversary symposium. Staying true to this format, I will briefly introduce the topic of this first panel before introducing our three speakers, who will each speak for nine minutes, developing aspects of our topic from their perspective of their discipline and area of expertise, and after which that, after that, we will open the panel to the audience for debate. But before I introduce the topic, I want to use the opportunity to congratulate and thank most warmly and most sincerely Jane, Katrina, the Hub team, all the colleagues in the Hub schools and across the university, the many, many Hub fellows and early career researchers past and present, 
and all the friends and supporters of the Hub, many of which are with us today, for your enormous commitment, passion, work over the last 10 years that have made the Trinity Longham Hub such a success story for the Arts and Humanities and for the University. I was actually at the meeting in 2004 or 2005 at which Jane Olmeyer first presented the concept of a hub for the arts and humanities. And while I came from the meeting admiring Jane's bold and ambitious vision, I would not in my wildest dreams have thought we were where we would be today and what we could celebrate. Crisis of democracy, where do we start? The erosion of trust in political institutions and in politicians, experts and elites in general. The fragmentation of the political spectrum and the increased volatility of electoral behavior. The attrition of the political center and the strengthening of protest parties on the right and on the left. The rise of a Eurosceptic, neo-nationalist, anti-pluralist and xenophobic right across Europe. The attraction of more authoritarian leadership models strongman politics and illiberal democracies worldwide, the challenges to the mechanisms of the public sphere that social media have brought, the disruptive challenges, the dramatic coarsening of public debate, the loss of respect towards your political opponent, the extension of what is becoming acceptable to voice, the increasing polarization of society in those who welcome and profit from globalization and those who lose out or feel threatened by it, the rise of narrow and exclusivist identities and the reclaiming and reinterpretation of cultural memory in support of such positions, the entrenchment against pluralist and open concepts of societies and the warnings against an eco-dictatorship as we have to face the challenges of climate change. This list is by no means exhaustive and I stop here or else you all need a coffee right now and not after this debate, but these are extremely complex pro problems that we need to understand, that we need to work against, that we need to analyze and discuss in their interdependency. We are very fortunate to have with us this morning three experts who will discuss and unpack some of these issues and their interdependency from the perspective of their disciplines and areas of expertise and in the order of appearance. Bill Emmett at the right, a most distinguished journalist, editor and author and chair of the Trinity Longham Hub governing body, Molly Pucci uh, in the middle, a historian working on cultural memory and identity politics in post-totalitarian societies, and Yvonne Buckley, eminent zoologist and researcher at the forefront of, bio, of the biodiversity and climate challenge. The three represent this different perspectives of the role of the arts and humanities within an interdisciplinary dialogue. One important field represented on the panel today is close attention to language and the, and the needed careful analysis on how it is used, the insistence on language that is at the same time hard-hitting and, and precise, critical and respectful, clear and nuanced. Another field is close attention to the politics of memory and how interpretations of history are used and abused in the political struggles of today and the complex question of what lessons history has for us, Molly. A third one is the issue of how we can atti change attitudes and influence behaviors today crucially in our relationship with our planet, where we as individuals and as societies 
have known for decades what we need to do, but just don't do it. I take a breath. This is sort of uh, what we set out to discuss in the next hour and a bit. Bill, Molly and Yvonne, we are very much forward looking to your contributions. Well, it's a great honor to be here, especially to be given the first word on this, uh, this uh, exciting panel. Um, and a great honor to be chairing uh, the Long Room Hub at this point in its, uh, in its history and evolution. A great past and an exciting future. In addressing this issue, um, I'm going to, in my nine minutes, I'm going to first go back to first principles for the purpose of clarity of my thought, and secondly, highlight what I think are the two major dangers that lie underneath the array of concerns that Jürgen very accurately uh, just laid out. The first principle is that crises of democracy is almost a tautology. Democracy is about crises. Democracy has crises inherent in it because that is what it is for. It is a means of, of resolving crises and lesser socio political disputes without recourse to violence and in ways that enable the society to adapt and evolve smoothly rather than with uh, extreme discontinuities. As such, however, democracy is much better suited to delivering accountability and perhaps conflict resolution when necessary than in actually making decisions. To remind oneself of that, one only has to walk past the statue of Edmund de Burke uh, and realize that democracy is not about making decisions, it's about deciding who should make the decisions representing the people. Authoritarian systems, much lauded by some today, are generally better at making decisions than democracies. But the question is, in whose interests are those decisions made? We can perhaps discuss later the case study unfolding before us in China of the coronavirus and the decision-making process and information flow that has lain behind the spread and, and, uh, of this pandemic. Democracies are not good at making decisions, but they are better at adaptation to change and to crises. The questions we face, though, are whether they can make the sort of decisions that are necessary in the face of some particularly big challenges today, one of which we will discuss in a moment, climate change, I'm sure. But secondly, when we look at the populist backlash, at least within Western Europe, to some degree Eastern Europe, but certainly also North America, this is a backlash, a response to, an adjustment to bad decisions that democracies made in the past, particularly bad decisions that led to the 2008 financial crisis. The democracies have adapted extremely well to crises in the past. Indeed, the libraries, the literature shelves are full of books titled The Crisis of Democracy. We can take dates uh, from when they are from, to look at highlighted crises. But that adaptation is not inevitable. It is not inevitably a benign pro-democracy outcome. Just because we've survived crises before 
doesn't mean we will always do so. And today, I think there are two particularly big risk factors that make one have good cause to worry about whether democracy can always survive these crises. The first and the biggest, I think you could characterize as the use of demos against democracy. The elevation of the will of the people in elections and referendums to become the only true source of legitimacy, giving those benefiting, benefiting from that so-called will of the people the right to ignore all the other aspects of democracy, including the rule of law, equality before the law, minority protections, checks and balances. The worked example of that that we are watching on a daily basis, possibly on a tweet-by-tweet -tweet basis, is Donald J. Trump. If he is re-elected in November, he will have survived impeachment, he will have survived inquiries into his, uh, into his um, connections, his campaign's connections with Russia, survived uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of allegations and infelicities, and will feel vindicated in his interpretation and that of his Attorney General about presidential power, which is, that is essentially, immune to all checks and balances. And I confidently predict that discussion will begin to arise about amending the Constitution to give him a third term, uh, as with um, his friend Vladimir Putin. And this, by the way, is not inconceivable. We'll come on to that. The second big uh, area of, uh, of concern, which is that third element of the future research of the Crisis of Democracy project here at the Hub, is the evolution of the media, especially social media, which has fueled this elevation of the demos against the full institutional framework of democracy. It is a paradox. We have an information revolution in which information is more abundant than ever before, more available to all of us than ever before. We all have in our hands our own communication devices to tweet hub at 10 uh, out to the world um, at any moment. Uh, and yet, disinformation is on the, the increase. The manipulation of these mechanisms of media, social media, through targeted advertising, as shown in the Cambridge Analytica affair in, uh, over Britain, but also in other elections, in a way that is invisible to scrutiny, uh, and also sits alongside, in this information abundance, the creation of information bubbles, cocoons, uh, in which people become self-referential only seeing the information that confirms their uh, current, um, uh, current beliefs, if you like, the Fox News uh, phenomenon, but um, one that is there elsewhere. We have always in our history of the media had this kind of tendency. In my country, readers of the Daily Telegraph only believed what the Daily Telegraph showed, told them. Uh, and so on across the spectrum. But this has become much more generalized across the whole media, particularly because of changes in television. The fact that in television there are no longer the sort of anchor, uh, like water cooler, um, conversation generating broadcasters like the networks in America, like RTE, like the BBC, uh, around which uh, a lot of the rest of the media circulates. The fragmentation of television has allowed this uh, move. So what are the research questions? 
first of all, is this a transitory or inherent phenomenon uh, in, the, in the media? Is it just an evolution of social uh, change? Secondly, how significant is it really? People like me get excited about it. People like me get worried about Russian interference or, or about uh, uh, manipulation of communication by certain political forces. Perhaps this is just because I disagree with them uh, and maybe I'm exaggerating the significance. Data needs to be studied to test that uh, significance. But finally also, what's the role for public policy in this? particularly in the treatment of the uh, oligopoly and monopoly platforms in social media. Can and should public policy intervene? Can it, especially if the demos is in the hands um, of the Trump-like figures who then seek to manipulate the way in which public policy um, is, uh, is implemented? I'm an optimist. I do think that we can adapt and evolve to all, through all these challenges. I do think that democracy absolutely is the best system available for dealing with these things, but I have to be a paranoid optimist. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill, and, uh, and Molly is our second speaker. Okay, um, thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. I'm going to speak uh, primarily as a historian of 20th century Europe and a historian of authoritarianism, so a little bit of a different uh, perspective. So the analogy that I most see with relevance to 20th century Europe today in sort of comparison to this crisis of democracy is really the interwar period in European history. So the period between the First World War and the Second World War when you saw what was called at the time the crisis of liberalism. Right? It was actually much bigger than thinking about you know, a, a democratic political system. It was about you know, attacks on the very values that made that system possible. So individual rights, civic rights, the idea of political pluralism. Um, and at that time, of course, you saw the rise of both the radical right and the radical left, both in conversation with each other, but also as larger critiques on uh, the liberal system. So what I thought I would talk about today is to what extent is this analogy actually useful and what types of lessons can we take away from it. So for a long time this crisis of liberalism, crisis of democracy in the interwar period was really seen as caused by the Great Depression. right? So uh, basically economic loss, the, the, the sort of um, economic problems that, that Europe faced at that time, uh, really drew people into the radical political parties um, and sort of, you know, polarized these politics between right and left. And I think we see some similar analysis today about, you know, how these economic uh, problems and sort of the, the, the problems of the grievances um, that people have with how, the, you know, the economy is working. Um, I think we see some similar uh, analyses. Um, but that's actually, uh, historians have shown that that's not really the whole picture. Uh, in fact, the radical right did not really uh, benefit from the Great Depression. It was actually uh, people moved more to the left uh, as a result of that. Uh, so they, we really started rethinking this period and asking, okay, well, if we can't fully talk about the economy as being the reason uh, that this happened, what other reasons um, can we actually uncover? Um, and the first, and I'll talk about the analogy here, uh, was basically just the idea of the end of the First World War. 
and the catastrophe that was the First World War, the displacement, uh, the confusion, the disillusionment with liberal values, the idea that uh, Europe was searching for a new identity, um, a new way of thinking, um, and really the uncertainty, the extreme uncertainty that followed on the war itself. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and the second is really the ability, uh, sort of, rather than looking at this as an economic issue, um, historians have turned to what's, what's called the history of emotions, uh, the history of, say, the uh, sentiments and anger and resentment, um, and started seeing the radical right less as actually coherent in the 20s, at least when it began, less as a coherent political program than a party that was able to capture under an umbrella a lot of different social grievances and anger against elites, anger about the war, anger at the left. Um, and I think we see this sort of kind of incoherent, but at the same time, um, ability of the right and the populist parties to sort of capture these, uh, these emotions um, and benefit from them. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I want to so to turn to the first one, the end of the First World War, when I started to look at this, I thought, well, okay, clearly we can't draw that analogy, right? We had nothing close to the catastrophe that was the First World War that destroyed, um, you know, not only the economy of Europe, but also the states themselves. You had the fall of empire, right? The, the mass killings. Um, and sort of, but then I started thinking, well, we did just recently have the end of an era, and that was the end of the Cold War. Um, and I think that we haven't really come to terms with the disillusionment, confusion, and lack of sort of direction that that sort of the end of the Cold War actually brought upon Europe and the world. Um, so I don't want to draw the analogy exactly, but I think there's something to be said about uh, the relationship between the end of, um, end of an era and the end of the Cold War and what we're seeing today as sort of the search uh, for identity. Uh, from my own field of study, which is Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, um, you can easily see how the end of the Cold War led across the region to the discrediting of the political left. Um, you've had the political left kind of fall out of the region in a large place. So the conversation is actually happening in the political right by and large, uh, for obvious reasons, right, given uh, the experience of communism in the way that they monopolized the political discourse in the region for so many years. Uh, so just in general you see that trend. Uh, but also, if you look at what democracy meant in countries like Russia, uh, if you look at Russia in the 1990s, for example, uh, democracy was catastrophic. Uh, it's really hard to describe how chaotic and how uh, disorienting democracy was in Russia when, when the Soviet Union fell. Uh, you had the rise of the Mafia, you had the rise of the oligarchs, you had the economic crisis in 1993 where the entire economy crashed and people lost their savings. If you say democracy, right, in, in Russia, these are the things that's profoundly disorienting, uh, period. And I don't mean to sort of idealize what came before, but I'm saying, you know, people lost um, a lot of the social net uh, that, it, that had come before. They lost, you know... Uh, there's extreme inequality in Russia in the 1990s, and it's impossible to understand the rise of Putin without understanding uh, that disorientation that happened as a result of the end of the Cold War. And this is a sort of, you know, ongoing, ongoing issue, I think, today. 
I don't mean to make this just about the East. I think, I think the end of the Cold War is equally disorienting for the West. Uh, the West constantly compared itself uh, to communism, considered itself, you know, more liberal, better than communism, right? There's sort of constantly this an implicit um, debate uh, between the two, implicit comparison, and their sense of identity was equally built on this superpower competition uh, between East and West. And the competition, you know, we think of it as, as negative, right? We think of the arms race and other things, but it was also positive in a sense. You had the space race, you had this sort of race to the moon, uh, building up science and building up, uh, you know, ways of, of, of developing technologies. Um, you had what was called the kitchen debates in the 1960s, uh, where Khrushchev and Nixon argued over who could provide a better lifestyle uh, for their people, right? Was it, was it capitalism or communism? Who could get people dishwashers? Uh, who could get people, you know, these, these consumer products, right? You had this, these conversations happening all the time. And I think when that fell away, uh, which it does now, it's sort of this larger search for meaning and identity uh, that's driving, in, in some ways, uh, this, you know, sort of extreme disorientation about what, what happens next in the search for identity. Um, so I'd say the second issue, really, the politics of hatred. Um, so this is also we see in the 1920s, and I think we think usually of, of these sort of extreme rightist parties as having very concrete political programs in the 1920s, and certainly they drew on extreme nationalism, extreme xenophobia, um, they're sort of very concrete, but they're actually, they drew on emotions and sentiments far more than concrete political uh, goals, and, and at least initially, right before they came to power. Um, so they're the party considered, and this was in Germany and Italy and everywhere, uh, the parties of social grievances, of contempt for institutions, contempt for liberalism, contempt for the left, uh, anger at the elites, right, this type of thing. And so it was actually, early movements were far more of a hodgepodge than I think we think of them in terms of the later manifestations. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said about what we see today as sort of just this, it's not united by this rational desire for X or Y. It's united by anti-elite, um, anti-establishment, anti-Hillary Clinton, and, and all of these anti-sentiments. Um, and I think the disturbing part is what allowed these regimes to come to power was in part their mass, mass following, because you know, they were able to represent these grievances, uh, but in part uh, because of the willingness of the conservative establishment, the established elites, to bring them into power. Um, and the analogy is kind of disturbing here, right, with, uh, you know, so basically the, the conservative elites invited Mussolini to be the prime minister. Uh, this was the king, this was the monarchy, this was, uh, you know, the, the business community. And they said, well, it's fine, once he's in government, we can tame him. Hitler, right? Once he, you know, they invited, you know, he, he, he came in, um, and his mass following was supposed to enter uh, parliament, and, well, once we invite him into government, we can tame him. Well, that didn't happen. That's exactly the logic right used for Trump today, I think, in many ways. Well, no, it's fine. He doesn't mean this stuff about the wall. Once we invite him to government, we can tame him. This is not what we should be thinking, right? Uh, so I don't mean to make the, you know, the sort of line analogy, but this conservative establishment, right, where we see the Republican Party, 
Um, the fact that they're legitimizing this, they're bringing him in uh, with their own interests in mind, with their own agenda in mind, with the idea that maybe you could eventually uh, sort of tame him is something we've seen with disastrous consequences, I think. Um, so I'll end on sort of by saying a couple of things. I mean, from the perspective, I think it's, it's also not fully accurate, the analogy, because from the perspective of the 1920s, democracy was a new system. It was a political experiment, as was communism, as was fascism, as was, you know, the fall of empires led to all of these ideas about what a new government should be and trying and testing different ways of thinking. Um, that's no longer the case. We've tried out <laughs> communism. We've seen how fascism ends up. We've seen how these systems end up. And so this idea that, you know, it's a political experiment, we're going to try out different things, um, it doesn't work. We have, we, we've seen where these regimes can go, and so I don't think we have as much of an excuse um, for bringing them back as we did, as they did at the time. Uh, so, you know, whereas from the perspective of the 1920s, I think in many ways, you know, the 1940s and 50s were unforeseeable. Um, from today, we know that this happened. Uh, so, you know, we have history to tell us this. So I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Molly. And over to you, Yvonne. Thanks. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and be able to engage with broader societal issues around the biodiversity and climate crises and how that is affecting democracy and how democracy can help resolve some of those problems. So I'm going to start in my comfort zone. I'm a scientist. I'm going to start with the science. We have seen from the IPCC and the IPBES reports <laughs> summarizing and synthesizing the science behind the climate and biodiversity crises that there's really compelling scientific evidence now for fundamental changes to the Earth's climate systems and at the same time, there are multiple human pressures on leading to serious declines in plant and animal and, and fungus populations, and bacterial populations even. Soil organisms are also declining. And there's extinction threats estimated to uh, around 1 million species over the next 50 to 100 years. So these are very real crises to ecologists like myself. Ecologists read the signs and signals of change in the landscapes and seascapes around us. And we've been doing this for decades. So it's a crisis right now, but you know, ever since I was a child and first got interested in ecology, it's been something that's been very much part of uh, my scientific background and training. So it's not a new problem. It's kind of come to a really important point of, of transition now, where it, where it goes from being something scientists do you know, and, and write papers on to something now that scientists are shouting and clamoring about and saying we need to do something about very, very urgently. Science isn't enough, though. So this is one of the reasons why I'm highly motivated to engage with smart people like you in this room about how we can get the kind of societal change that we need to address these crises. The Earth's systems and biodiversity provide life support systems for humans. So it's, it's the people who are, who are ultimately going to um, bear the brunt of these crises. Biodiversity will look after itself. Biodiversity has recovered after you know, five different mass extinction events that have happened throughout the geology of planet Earth. It takes millions of years, and the biodiversity that emerges after these crises is very different to what went before. Think about the extinction of the dinosaurs. It was a world dominated by reptiles. It was completely different. 
to the world dominated by mammals that followed, and the most important mammal species, humans, are changing the planet and you know, causing reassembly of different ecological communities in different ways. So ultimately, these crises threaten food security, they threaten water security and water quality, and they threaten human well-being, and in some parts of the world right now, it's threatening human survival. The projections of plus 2, plus 3, plus 4 degrees Celsius as we proceed towards the end of this century will make parts of the Earth uninhabitable that are currently inhabited by people. So there's increasing societal recognition now about these climate and biodiversity crises. So the Fridays for the Future school strikes have been really important in act activating people. And the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change here in Ireland was a really important societal conversation around what we can do about it here. <coughs> Uh, there's some governmental leadership um, in Europe at the moment. There is a, a, a conversation going on, some, more than a robust conversation, let's put it that way, about common agricultural policy reforms and about changing the subsidies to farmers to put more subsidies into uh, carbon services that they can provide and biodiversity services that they can provide, for example. So there are some big solutions out there. But many of the solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises require huge systemic change in how we eat, how we live, how we travel, how we consume and shop and use things. And there are massive vested interests in the status quo of fossil fuel dependence. And the crisis that's playing out in Australia right now um, with the bushfires and the massive climate, it's moved from climate denialism, outright climate denialism to a kind of a climate pragmatism. Well, this is happening anyway. We need coal because all our pensions are invested in it. And, um, you know, what can we do? Our, our Australia's actions, I'm saying our because I'm an Australian citizen, so I feel justified to, to criticise the regime at the moment. Um, our actions as a nation in Australia are a drop in the ocean compared to the global carbon emissions. So we'll just carry on doing what we're doing and we'll just try and solve the bushfire crisis some other way other than by reducing emissions. And, you know, we see huge social transitions here in Ireland as well, with the move away from turf-powered uh, uh, turf electricity generation, but there's still a big domestic turf industry um, that, that is in, in conflict currently. And there's genuine problems with the transition to 100% renewable energy policies that need to be resolved. So, the crisis of democracy, in my eyes, is the mandate to government from society to take difficult decisions that we see through the activism going on right now, like taxing carbon, restricting and changing land use, um, changes to agricultural policy, things like you know, conversations around reducing the national herd, de-intensifying dairy, um, you know, the up till now intensification of dairy has been policy, uh, reduction in consumerism, which affects a huge number of people, and then the knock-on effects on the current, you know, the, the, the economy that we have now um, are really serious. And these changes are needed to reduce um, the impacts of a plus two degrees Celsius world, and it's very real, this plus two degrees Celsius world will happen in my lifetime. I may see a plus three Celsius world, my children may see a plus four Celsius world, and that is, is quite terrifying. That's the immediacy of the problem. So will society vote for parties that take the hard choices, that invest in public transport and electrification of vehicles, that reform agriculture to reduce emissions, that encourages and incentivizes a low-consumption economy. Will we vote for that? There's also a crisis of democracy in the balance between individual actions and systemic change that needs to happen to global economic systems. Individual choices on reductions of impact are a drop in the ocean 
compared to the continued emissions of large economies. And these arguments also scale up to the level of nation states. Why should one country like Ireland or Australia move away from an economically productive but polluting industry when the global reduction in emissions is small in comparison to some other nation states? How do we make these kinds of incremental actions count and how do we incentivize those? So I guess because I'm an ecologist, I look to the natural world for solutions. And I think we need to focus on our natural assets. We have grasslands, bogs, forests, oceans, salt marshes, and many other habitats that provide multiple benefits for people, and which can be restored, expanded, and enhanced to provide nature-based solutions for the climate and biodiversity crises. Nature is not the only solution, but it's part of the solution space. At the same time that we transition away from fossil fuels and polluting industries, we need incentives and solutions that make that transition more positive and proactive, and which provide tangible benefits to local communities. And I think that by focusing on the landscapes and seascapes that we live in, we can provide these kinds of positive solutions. We can bring nature into our cities. We can intensify the role that nature plays in farmland and the benefits it provides for our food security. We can integrate nature-based solutions with new developments, new factories, new housing developments, as well as preserving what is wild currently and rewilding suitable areas. We need to make our natural systems robust to the changes that we're imposing now and the changes that are coming down the track to ensure that they can continue to clean our water, provide us with food, provide us with shelter, provide us with inspiration, spirituality and cultural opportunities. Our ecosystems are already very substantially altered from past pre-human landscapes, and they'll continue to change as the climate warms. And we need to keep our assets in good working condition, able to adapt to the new conditions, uh, in order to keep this flow of essential goods and services that we get from nature. And I'm just going to finish by saying, you know, localizing the importance of nature to communities can also apply to ourselves. And I know that many of my colleagues here in the arts and humanities take inspiration from nature uh, for producing artworks, for producing literature and drama. And some of us study um, you know, the cultural products of society relative to the inspiration from nature that we get. So um, to end on a hopeful and positive and optimistic note, um, I want you to, when you leave today, you know, go out for a little walk at break time or lunchtime, notice the springtime emerging flowers that are all around in the grounds here in Trinity. They provide food for the awakening bees after winter. Notice the gulls as they wheel around. Notice the flocks of Brent geese that fly over our city here on their, uh, as part of their winter migration and before they go back to Iceland to breed. Um, notice the trees that are embodied carbon. They are um, carbon in the air made solid and physical. Notice the shelter and the, the uh, shade that they produce for us. And notice the inspiration that you get from just being in nature, seeing green, seeing blue, and the well-being that it provides to you. So localize benefits of nature, and hopefully by doing this at large scales, from local all the way through to global, we have some nature-based solutions that will contribute to, um, to this. Thank you. As well as being heard. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone.
Here's to the next 10 years.